the National Archives podcast series, Victorian Women Prisoners, presented by Chris Heather. Okay, right, thank you for coming and good afternoon. Does anyone have a convict in their, in their family tree? Yeah, it's not a woman, okay. When I first came here, you couldn't search the census by name. You had to go through by address. And often people would find that the person they're looking for is not actually there. And that was pretty much the end of the line. But now you can search by name. And people are finding that their ancestor is actually in prison, quite commonly, female or male. And so we're getting, we're getting more and more inquiries about these records as people find that their ancestors are in prison. So today we're going to look at the female prisoners' records, and in particular the ones in a series called PCOM 4. PCOM is the short version of Prison Commission. It's the series code for Prison Commission. And you can think of it as part of the Home Office. It was set up in 1877 just to administer and inspect the prisons, and so that's, that's what PCOM stands for. What I intend to do is have a look generally at what these records are and then just show you some examples of the type of record that you, you can find on these files and then we'll have a look at some of the interesting characters that you can uh, find amongst the records. Okay, so does anyone know what a prisoner's licence is? Yeah, that's it. They've, someone's committed a crime, they've been convicted, sent to prison, and then towards the end of their sentence, they're released a little bit early. Sometimes they're called tickets of leave, particularly in Australia. They call them tickets of leave. And today we kind of call it someone's released on parole. But it's all more or less the same thing. The period covered is 1853 to 1887. And this was when transportation to Australia was winding down. It finished, I think the last ship arrived with uh, convicts on it in Western Australia in 1868. So during this time, the process was gradually winding down and the prisons were getting fuller because the, you know, there just wasn't anywhere else to put people. So one solution was to let people out a little bit early. That's why tickets of leave came into existence. Now, in our collection in PCOM 4, there are 72 boxes and they're arranged simply by number. They're not arranged by name. They're kind of arranged by date because they would be issued in date order, in numerical order of licence. But unless you know the date when the person's released or their licence number, then really you wouldn't be able to find their, their record in this series. That is until recently when we started listing them by name. That's why I've been working on these records. We've been going through listing them by name. In the early boxes, say probably up from piece number one up to about 20, you get 100 women's files in each box. Okay, so you order one box, you get a box about six inches deep and there's 100 files in there. Towards the other end, up to, well, probably about from piece 60 to 72, the numbers start to go down because the files are thicker for each woman. So you get only 30, bo 30 files in each box towards the end of the series. Now, there are some indexes in PCOM 6, so if you wanted to, you could start with PCOM 6, have a rough idea of the date when the person may have been released, 
see if you can find their name and that will give you the license number then you could have gone back to PCOM 4 and ordered up the relevant box but you know that's awkward and if you're in Australia or not you know even in this country but you can't get to the office it's virtually impossible to do it remotely so that's why we've been indexing them by name okay there are male licenses they're in PCOM 3 and there's 10 times as many there's um, 770 boxes of those and they are being worked on by another group in the office but they've only just started on those and there are similar records in PCOM 5 they haven't got licenses in so that's why they're separate but if you actually if you actually ordered a box of PCOM 5 they'd look very very similar to PCOM 4 or 3 but they haven't got licenses in okay this is how they were listed before so you've got the piece numbers down the side You've got covering dates and then you've got the license numbers here and you can see there's a hundred in each to begin with and it just says one box. So, you know, you're looking for John Smith. How do you know which box he's going to be in? So, after we finish listing them, this is how it's come out. You've got the reference at the top, PCOM for piece number one or box number one, item 11. So each person's giving a, given an item number now. It just happens to be license number 11 as well, but that's just coincidence. It, that won't follow all the way through. And you get the name, in this case, Hannah Jane Smalley. She's convicted of larceny, stealing six yards of material, I think that is, uh, the property of James Jerome Pratt. So you get the victim of the crime as well as the culprit. Then you get the court of conviction, which is useful because then you can chase up the um, trial records. If it's the sizes, the records would be here. If it's quarter sessions, they're usually in the county record office. You get the date of conviction, <clears throat> which is useful, and then the age, that's just to give you an idea if it's likely to be your person or not. And then the sentence, and you can see this person was sentenced to 10 years transportation. Well, obviously, she never actually went. She stayed in this country, otherwise there wouldn't be a license for her. And that's quite common. You'll find people in these records who were sentenced to death, or transportation, or just penal servitude. And just because they were sentenced to a particular sentence, it doesn't mean that actually went into effect. So people sentenced to death may still be alive and well a long time afterwards. You also get place of abode, or if it doesn't give their own place of abode, what we've tried to do is put either their parents or their husband or their daughter or son, or even just next of kin. If, it's a, if, the, if there is a nice address in the file, we've tried to use it, again, to give people an idea of where this person lived. And then the covering date is the date of the licence. So that's not the date when she went in, it's the date when she's coming out, more or less, or the date when the, the licence was issued anyway. Let's have a look at some of the typical uh, documentation you're going to find in these things. This is the cover sheet, and this is from the later end of the series. They don't all look like this, the, later, the latter half do. Okay, so you get a cover sheet, and this gives you, I'll just run through the list of things it gives you just on the cover alone. It gives you the name, the sentence, whether married or single, name and residence of next of kin or family, religion, which is usually church, chapel or Roman Catholic, crime, committal or date of committal, date of conviction, trade or occupation, Character, in other words, previous convictions. So you get a list of previous convictions. On this one in the middle, it's got nil. So this was her first offence. <coughs> this cover is for Sophia Martha Todd. She was accused of murdering a child. It gives you conduct, 
health, education, in other words, can she read or write, physical description, list of prisons with dates, and obviously details of the crime. If I just see on this one, she's feloniously killing and murdering a certain infant child whose name is unknown at Liverpool on the 25th of July, 1875. So she's charged with murder, basically. Okay, so if you get that cover and open it, this is what it looks like inside. And there are three things to note here, really. You've got the order of licence. So this would go to the prison, to the prison governor, and that's his permission to release her. He had to release her within 30 days of this arriving. Okay? And on this, it gives you her name, uh, what, what she was accused of, where she was tried, and the date, and how long she was given in prison. This is five years here. Which prison she's in at the moment, because they didn't stay in one prison, they would move around from one to another. So she's in the Fulham convict prison at the moment, and so on. And you get the licence number at the top. On the other side, you get a photograph, which is nice. If you're lucky, you might find two or three photographs if she's been in and out of prison, you might find several of these files sort of tied together. So if you keep going, you might find another photograph of her younger or older as it goes on. And at the top, there's a tiny little um, press cutting. Now, those are useful for filling in gaps. It might have more details about the crime, who the victim was, if it, if it, if it doesn't say elsewhere in the, fold, in the file. And it may give a potted history of the trial as well. So they're very useful if you, if you find one of those in there. Some of them are so long that they tail out the bottom of the file and they folded them up. That's just a tiny one. So the next thing, if I concentrate on the photograph, this is Sophia Todd, the one that was accused of killing a child in Liverpool. She's charged with murder. She was originally given a, a death sentence, but it was commuted to life. She's 28. And you'll see as we go through, I've got quite a few of these photos, Generally, I would say it makes them look 15 or 20 years older than they are. They look a lot older than they are. There's one lady that's 19, you'll see, and she looks a lot older when we get to her. These photos are nice, but they could be unique. This time, photography was still quite early. People probably wouldn't own their own camera, and they probably couldn't afford to go to a photographer. So this may well be the only photograph of this woman in the world, which is, you know, it's nice to know. Now, going back to that order of licence, there's another close-up of it there. That's, that gives you all the sort of key bits of information which you can use to unlock other records with, like the, the place of the trial and the date and so on. OK, the next thing you're likely to find is a medical history sheet. When the prisoner arrived in a prison, they'd be sort of examined and interviewed by the medical officer. OK, and he would fill this sheet in. He would fill in the top bit with more details about the crime and her name, her age, where her place of abode was. You get place of abode, you get where she was born, in this case the West Indies, which is unusual again. She lived in Manchester. She's got life, life PS, that's penal servitude. And then he fills in details of any illnesses or distinguishing marks in this bit. This is where you can get notes of um, tattoos. It's not all medical stuff they put on here. It could be anything distinguishing you from someone else. I think this is a, an overrun from when they didn't have photography. So they would have to describe you, you know, and that's why they fill in all this 
Details of health, generally healthy, she's got sound mind, that sort of thing. And then as she moves from prison to prison, they would enter more details here about height and uh, weight and so on. There's a little bit at the bottom, which you can't see, but it's very small print, and he had to categorise each prisoner into one of four uh, descriptions. The first one is, number one, stout and strong. Number two is fat. Number three is spare but muscular. And number four is spare but weak. So each prisoner was categorised into one of those four boxes. The next form that you might find is a table of marks earned. This is like at school when you get stars or ticks or team points. Each person, each lady was entitled to six marks a day and they totted them up and converted them into money. I'm not sure when they got that money, but if they misbehaved and broke something, then they would be charged and the, the money for that thing that they broke would be deducted from this. And you can, you can find great wadges of them. If they've been in for ten years, then that goes back right to when they began. They could get 42 marks per week. The next thing is a letter log. This details letters sent out by the prisoner down the left-hand side. On the right-hand side, you've got letters received by the prisoner. Okay, so you can work out who she's writing to, whether they've written back, and sometimes you get addresses of people, usually relatives or friends, so again, that's useful for family history. If you lost someone, you might get their address on here. Okay, the next thing looks similar, but it's a petitions log. A petition is like a formal request. You think of it now as going around with a petition getting names, but, I mean, it's the same thing. It's a formal request either to the governor of the prison or to the home secretary. This is still for Sophia Todd, this one. And she... Prays in, in the middle of this one, she's praying for consideration of her case. She's pleading that she's innocent, and she admits concealing the death of the child, but not willingly, being forced by the violence of her husband. So that's the detail on this side. On this side, you can see just about no grounds. And that's quite a common thing, they just say, no grounds, no grounds. So they're not going to consider it, unless there's any new evidence come to the fore, or she's in very ill health then it's pretty much always no, not going to do anything about it. You also get requests to the governor of the prison about small things, and we'll, there'll be an example of one of those later on as well. Okay, now, the next thing. Next to the medical history sheet, you get special medical remarks. I've included this one because, again, it's from Sophia Todd's file. On here, you, it might be medical, it's usually medical, but it may just be something about the, the type of person she is. Because she's moving from prison to prison, each governor would need to know a little bit of the background story behind what she's like. So if she's suicidal or depressive or you know, a troublemaker, then that sort of thing could be listed down here. And this one, part of this one says, this convict has been visited by one on various occasions. This is the medical officer writing here. On many occasions, was in a condition of collapse. Her case became at length so serious that I considered further imprisonment would shorten life, that I had no hesitation in forwarding the necessary report recommending her for Her Majesty's merciful pardon. She leaves now with her liberty granted and proceeds to Bristol for further medical treatment under the supervision of the Reverend James Davidson, St Paul's Vicarage, Portland Square, Bristol, medical officer. So this is Sophia getting out. So she was originally sentenced to death, 
then she got life imprisonment, now she's getting out. You see what I mean, how the initial sentence doesn't always stand. Okay, so she's going off to, uh, under the supervision of this vicar who's sort of elected to look after her. So you can get things about suicide attempts or illnesses or behavioural problems listed on these sheets. Still on this lady's file, this is a letter from the vicar who was going to look after her. It's a letter received by the prison. They wouldn't all go straight to the prisoner. They'd all be read, and if there's anything that shouldn't be in there, then the prisoner wouldn't get to see it. So you can find actual letters that the prisoner never actually saw in the file. Okay, this one, is, it says, Dear Madam, and it, uh, this must have been a, a female governor of the prison, which you know might be unusual. But anyway, he's writing to the governor or the director of the prison and asks for his letter to be passed on to Sophia. And he's asking where she is now and what her health is and what her spiritual state is like and if there's any further evidence of guilt or innocence. Okay, Anyone like to guess what the most common crime is amongst these women? Stealing, yeah. Stealing, or as it's termed, larceny. Stealing or theft is the most common thing. There are various varieties of larceny. You get larceny by a servant, which is doubly bad, because not only are you stealing something, but you're betraying the trust that your master has placed in you. So that is treated more seriously than just ordinary larceny. Then you get larceny from the person, which could be mugging, or it could be pickpocketing. But it's again, it's a little bit more serious because there's a potential danger to the health of the person, especially if it's like highway robbery or you know, there's, you're being violent or you've got a weapon or something. So that's a bit more serious. Receiving stolen goods is quite a common one. You have, to, you have to know that they're stolen to be accused of it or convicted of it. If you, if you receive it and you didn't really know that it was stolen, then that's not a crime. But if you knew it was stolen, then that's the crime. Another common one we get is arson. Stealing material, funnily enough, that's quite a common one. For the larceny, stealing theft, that would be mostly food or clothing. Boots, coats, things left in pubs, that sort of thing. Stealing material is next best thing because you could make clothes out of it. And what they used to do was steal from shop doorways or displays outside shops. So that's quite common. Manslaughter, I've put that, but it could be murder as well. They're sort of equally fairly common. Uttering base coin is a very common one. That means trying to spend forged money. Either uttering base coin, which is actually spending it, or possessing a mould for making it. That's quite common as well. And then a nice one at the end, picking a pocket at Bandry Fair. <laughs> that was what they were actually accused of. I thought that was very <laughs> evocative. Okay, now some more unusual ones I've come across. Stealing loot strings. <laughs> very serious offence. Stealing an iron scraper from the entrance of a gentleman's house. You know those things outside old house doorways where you scrape your, the mud off? You know, scrap iron could be quite valuable. So someone was accused of that. Receiving a pair of gaiters, value 11 pence. Not even stealing them, just receiving them, and you get sentenced for that. Stealing 19 pounds of broken glass and a basket. So 
and I think she worked in a glassworks or something. So obviously she just took it home, all this broken glass in a basket, and then the uh, factory owner came down on her for that. Okay, and then there's more, a more serious one. Attempting to murder her child, feloniously throwing Robert Jennings into a cesspool to the depth of four feet with intent to kill and murder him. Now these are fairly common, actually. These sort of ladies trying to get rid of illegitimate children. Sadly, it, it's fairly common. You probably find one or two in each box, really. So that's quite common, especially if they're single mothers. Can't afford to look after themselves, let alone a child. So... That's some of the uh, crimes we come across. Now, let's have a look at some of the individual people. This is Elizabeth Frances Noble. She was accused of manslaughter in the Yorkshire Assizes, and uh, she got five years in prison. What she did, according to the file, was, again, feloniously, if I can say that, feloniously, by neglect and want of medical care and sufficient food, killing and slaying a boy, Harry Coulson, who she was looking after. I'm not sure that it was her own son. I think she was just his uh, guardian. And in her file, you get a press cutting. It's quite long, but I, I think it's worth reading through. It says, Elizabeth Francis Noble, 48, was indicted feloniously by neglect and want of medical care and sufficient food, killing and slaying Harry Coulson, seven years of age, at Beverley, which is in Yorkshire, I think. So he's seven years old. It was stated that the prisoner had the means of providing proper food and nourishment for the child and had spent the money in drink. In fact, she saw this child dying before her eyes. So willful and deliberate seemed to have been the woman's conduct that she actually persuaded herself that the child wanted to die. It seemed that when one of the neighbours found fault with her and told her that the child was dying, she answered, The child wants to die. It does not want to live. It wants to die and go to its daddy. The father's death took place in August last, and from that time the child began to be ill, though it had previously been in a healthy condition. It did not receive sufficient food, was neglected in every way, and lived in a state of horrid filth. The neighbours occasionally supplied it with food, and a son of the prisoner, who was a joiner, received ten shillings a week, paying the greater part to his mother, so she had the money to feed him if she wanted to. The latter invariably spent the money in drink, during the last week of the child's life, food was provided by the neighbours, but the child was una unable to retain anything on its stomach, and it had arrived at such a state that nothing could save life. The jury returned a verdict of guilty, and she got five years penal servitude. So you can see that really fills out the story, more than just sort of a one-line entry on the licence there. Anyway, this is Mary Ann Billingham. She was accused of procuring abortion at the Warwick Assizes. So she got 20 years in prison. The previous woman got five for allowing a boy to die. This person gets 20 years. And on her petitions log, she's petitioning the Secretary of State here, Home Office, and she prays for a merciful consideration of her case with a view to receiving some mitigation of her long sentence. That's the 20 years. She pleads that her son in America has offered her a home and that if liberated, she would immediately go out there. And that's quite common. You know, transportation is coming to an end, but this is a kind of voluntary transportation. They're saying, look, if you let me out, I'll just leave the country. So that's, that's quite a common thing that... Uh, I don't know if it actually worked in practice, but people thought that, you know, you'd get let out if you said you'd go. And she states that her health and strength have gr greatly faded. And then there's a note on the bottom, which is the medical officer, 
saying that uh, she's not robust and she loses weight as she advances in age, but her health is uninjured by imprisonment. And that is a very common phrase you find on these things. As long as there's no danger to her health, then they'll just keep her in prison. But as soon as she looks like she might die, then they'll release you. They don't want you dying in the prison. Okay, the next person, Mary Ann Hall. She stole a purse and got seven years. On her file, we see a form that's quite common. It's an application to change religion, or you might say denomination now. She went in as a Protestant and wants to convert to Roman Catholicism. And it says, this prisoner, prisoner was brought up as a Roman Catholic and had Roman Catholic parents. She never ceased to believe in the Roman Catholic religion, but entered herself as a Protestant merely because she believed that, as such, she would obtain greater privileges. She says that she's sorry for what she's done and begs to be allowed to follow her own religion. And I've seen very similar documents like this with the other way around. They go in as a Catholic, thinking they're going to get, get treated better, or they would be moved to a prison where there's more Catholics, say, in the Liverpool area, because that's where their family is. So they, they didn't stick to their own religion, they just thought it was, you know, which would give the better option. Okay, next person is Sarah Brindle, accused of stealing mutton in Lancashire. She's actually aged 47. You might think she looks a little bit tired in that picture, and the reason might be, if you look along the top edge. She's got 19 children, only six of which are living. The next little bit in the middle there says six living and then charwoman. So 19 children. And th this isn't on all of the files, but where it is on there, it's about usually half are still alive. So if you've had 10 children, about five are alive. So that's an indication of the child mortality rate. You know, probably about one in two die. Next person is Elizabeth Booth, Booth, another one procuring abortion. You might remember the first one procuring abortion got 20 years. This one got five years for the same crime. Don't know why, but this, I put this one in because there's a nice example of the daily life of a prisoner on, in her file. In her petitions log, she petitions the governor saying she complains of her tin pints causing her tea and cocoa to be black. So she's got nice tin metal cups and they're tainting her drink. And on this side it says uh, they'll be changed in due course. So, you know, it's just a, a nice snippet of daily life in prison. The next example here is from someone's medical, medical history sheet. What they would do, the medical officer, as I mentioned before, would interview the person, just say, how are you, basically? And whatever they said he'd write down. So <laughs> Eliza Nethercott basically said, I mustn't grumble. <laughs> and so he put that down. She was tried at Surrey Quarter Sessions, so we won't have her trial records here. They'll be at the Surrey History Centre. She got seven years in prison. The next lady is Mary Marshall, accused of larceny, tried at Middlesex and given four years in prison, and she wasn't happy about it. She was a feisty young lady. This is a section from her punishments log. You probably can't read it, but I'll read it out for you. The 19th of November, disciplinary matters. For destroying prison property, shrieking in a most excited manner, using most vile language, violently resisting the male officer, kicking and screaming and using most filthy language, 
struggling while being searched and trying to strangle herself. That was on one day. <laughs> on, on the 20th, the following day, for kicking and knocking violently at her cell door, using very bad language and destroying prison property, loosening a brick in her cell wall and scraping the mortar from two others, and for getting out of restraint, destroying prison property and breaking away the mortar around her cell door, also releasing herself from her loose jacket. So, you know, she, she wasn't happy that she was in prison. <laughs> and in her petitions log, she kind of sobers up a little bit and then she inquires if she's lost her remission or her reduction in length of sentence. How much of it has she forfeited? That's what it says on the top left there. And on the top right it says she's lost the whole of her remission. You can't really be surprised for that. And then the next question is, when will she get her number three class and how long must she wear it before she regains the second class? So she had the second class. They would come in with no class at all and then they'd go to third class, second class, first class and then a special class. And you'd get slightly better privileges the higher you went. And if you misbehaved, they'd drop you down. And that's what's happened to her. So she's got to wear her... Um, she'll get her third class in September next, and then she's got to remain therein for 203 days before she gets her second class back. This one's a more humorous example. Maria Wilson, on her special medical remarks column, it says um, that uh, she's got some acne, some general acne, and she attributes this to high living, having drunk often three bottles of champagne daily before dinner. <laughs> The next one, I'll put this in just to give you an example that you can get more than one photo of the same person. She was in prison for larceny, but she was previously in as well. So you get two photos, five years apart, and you can see the change in her. She's looking a little bit the worse for wear. Jane Farrell is the next one. She, she stole a watch from Crispin Farrow, nice name, and in her file we find the rules on receiving and sending letters. This goes back to my point about them being third class, second class and so on. In, when you went in, you were allowed to write and receive one letter every six months, and that continued when you'd got your third class as well. Every six months, one letter out, one letter in. And you could have a visitor for 20 minutes, once every six months. Then in second class, you could write a letter and receive a letter every four months, and you could get a 20-minute visit every four months. First class, it was every three months, and the visit could last another 10 minutes, so you could have a 30-minute visit. And then in the special class, you could write and receive one letter every two months and get a 30-minute visit. Now, the letters had to be just communication between two people. It mustn't be any news. And you mustn't enclose, the people writing in mustn't enclose any stamps or tobacco or food or parcels of any kind. It's just literally, how are you? Are you okay? We're looking forward to you coming out, that sort of thing. So pretty harmless. And they were, as I say, they were all censored or read before the prisoner got them or before the prisoner had sent them out. Now, Jane Farrell, the, the last lady we saw, she got a letter from Manchester Workhouse about her son. Obviously, if she's in prison, she can't look after her children. So her son went to Manchester Workhouse 
and it just very bluntly says, Jane Farrell, I beg to inform you, your child, James Henry Farrell, is dead, in capitals, in this establishment, and will be interred on Tuesday next. Nice of them to let her know, isn't it? <laughs> she can't do anything about this anyway. She's in prison. They wouldn't let her out for the funeral or whatever. Okay. The next lady is Sarah Sanders, a country girl from Devon. She stole a tablecloth and got three, oh no, seven years penal servitude and three years police supervision. You can see that on some of the files. So even when she's done her seven years, she's still got to report to the police for another three years for stealing a tablecloth. And she's 18. She looks a bit older there. 18 years old. And on her file, there's a letter from the chief constable of Exeter in Devon. So she's committed the crime in Devon. The police have got her and she's in the police cell. And the letter says, I beg to inform you that this woman made a most determined attempt on her life in our cells by repeated attempts to strangle herself. Okay, and this is sent to the prison governor. So in the, mean, in the meantime, she's been moved to the prison and the chief constable is writing to the prison just to warn them that she might try and kill herself. And it goes on, she attempted a similar act about two years ago by trying to drown herself. Now remember, they, all she did was steal a tablecloth so this is a very troubled 18-year-old girl. And one of the reasons for this sort of thing is that there were two systems in place. There was the silent system in prison and the separate system. Both of them, well, I'll describe each one. The silent system was that you could associate with other prisoners, but you couldn't talk to them. And then the separate system was that you were in solitary confinement all the time. And the idea was that you would just be alone with your thoughts and you would think and pray about what you've done and you would come out, come out a better person and you wouldn't associate with other criminals and learn tricks of the trade or it wouldn't be a school for scoundrels if you like. So that was the idea, it was meant to make you a better person. What it actually tended to do was make some people actually go mad or suicidal and it really didn't work. Okay, so the next one is still about this and she's, she's being force fed now. This is a character reference on, on her special medical remarks. So it's not strictly medical, but it is to do with her health. She is in the... It says here, she is the incarnation of most things that are devilish. Willfulness and perversity that must have impressed from infancy, defiance and impatience, such obstinacy as is exemplified in the refusal of food, both solid and liquid, until it has become necessary to use artificial means for the support of life and unfounded complaints characterise this depraved young woman. So it's a very harsh approach. She's gradually going mad, and she, you know, today we would try and give her some psychiatric help, but they're just clamping down on her and they're force-feeding her because she won't eat. And there's even more medical officers' comments. It says, no unnecessary notice should be taken of her. She has always been more readily tamed here by apparent indifference to her or her whims. So just ignore her. Okay, there's a illustration of convicts exercising. This is, you can see they're going around in a circle here and they've got masks on so that they can't really see each other. And they just follow the ropes. You can see them holding onto the ropes here. So in a way, they're associating, they're exercising together, but they can't communicate to each other and they can't see each other. They're just going by pulling the rope in, in a circle. One... You have two circles or three circles, one going that way and the one inside going the other way. 
Okay, Isabella Riley. She's another colourful character. In her punishments log, similar to the other punishments log we looked at, on the left it says, for shouting and using very bad language towards E159 Mary Fitzpatrick, another prisoner, singing in her cell, destroying prison property, using most vile, filthy language, dancing and screaming violently. Also, when being searched, tearing her brown serge jacket, threatening she would kill someone when she went back to the ward, and calling the medical officer vile names. And the punishment she got was close confinement for 14 days separation on the ordinary diet, which is bread and water, to pay for the dress destroyed and to have the blanket repaired. Okay. And more on Isabella Riley. On her special medical remarks, the medical officer says... This is a navvy of the worst type in petticoats. <laughs> in strength and voice, she's masculine, and her conversation is often blasphemous and obscene. It's not a very flattering description, but let's have a look at what she looks like. <laughs> <clears throat> now, how old do you think she is? She's 19. She, um, she stole £10, 15 shillings and a purse in Durham. Also on her file... There's the uh, application to change religion. In, on the 29th of January, 1880, she was Protestant and asked to change to Roman Catholic. And what would happen is the Protestant chaplain and the Roman Catholic chaplain, chaplain would interview her and try and determine which denomination she really was. And if they weren't sure, they would write to her next of kin, her husband, or if she was young enough, her mum and dad, to say, how did you bring her up? Are you Catholics or Roman Catholic or um, Protestants? And she's written in her own handwriting there. I was christened and brought up in the Roman Catholic religion and I wish to return to it feeling unhappy in not attending to my duties. That's 1880. 1881, she decides she's not Roman Catholic after all. <laughs> she says, Isabella Riley wish to return to the Protestant religion and she's been brought up to it from a child and because it's her own religion... So again, she thought maybe she'd get better treatment if she was one or the other. Okay, now, if you did a search for Martha Goldsborough or for pickled onions, because that's what she stole, you would find this. So it tells you it's Martha Goldsborough. Uh, she was convicted of larceny, stealing a bottle of pickled onions in West Yorkshire. She's 13 years old, little girl, seven years transportation... But obviously she didn't go anywhere because uh, she's here and she's getting a licence. But she did serve three years, four months in prison for stealing onions. And one of the nice things is we've got her full address, at least her mother, so presumably she was still living with her mother, at 106 Providence Street, White Abbey, Bradford, in Yorkshire. The next one is a nice example. This comes back to my saying it was slightly international. Um, this is Cecilia Flynn this is a Scottish one she stole £109 which is a huge sum in those days from the person and uh, the court was the Circuit Court of Justiciary in Glasgow, Lanarkshire she's 25 years old she's got four years penal servitude and her father is from Cross Molina and Castle Bar Mayo, Dublin, Ireland so she's basically an Irish girl in Scotland and her file is here in London <coughs> So you might be looking, you might think, oh, go to the National Archives of Scotland or the National Archives of Ireland, but no, the file is here. Now that we've 
index these records by name and by date and by court, it can open up other records that might have been difficult to use. The important thing is usually the date and the, the court, the date of the conviction and the date of the, um, the type of court. And these are some of the other useful records for looking at criminals, but you do really need to know the date. So these PCOM4s that we've indexed and the PCOM4s, the PCOM3s for the men that are going to be indexed soon, act as a key to unlocking some of these other records because it will give you the key facts to find these people in these records. Okay, right, well, thank you all for coming. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 7th of October 2008 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>